You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. On today's show, I have a good friend and student of monetary history, Mark Moss. During our discussion, Mark talks about financial cycles, political cycles, and technological cycles and how they overlap throughout history. We cover his thoughts on other projects in the space and how they might evolve as more regulatory guidance is provided. And we also cover his thoughts on Bitcoin exchanges now purchasing traditional banks and onboarding all their existing customers into the Bitcoin ecosystem. So without further delay, here's my interview with Mr. Mark Moss. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Mark Moss. Mark, it has been long overdue that you came on our show here. And uh, boy, I'm excited to have you. Thanks, Preston. I am uh, so excited to be here as well. One of the, I don't know, maybe the biggest podcast in, uh, in the investing space. So go on, go on. And, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, always enjoy talking to you. So it's going to be fun. Hey, so you're a student of history and cycles yeah. in general. And that's kind of how I want to start off the show because I have just deep admiration for the way you kind of view things, the lens, the longer term lens, and how you're kind of piecing together bigger themes. And I think it would just be an awesome opportunity for you to kind of start off there with our audience and just kind of provide them a sight picture of how you think we've arrived where we are today. Because so many people will look at the world and say, oh, well, we're in this debacle and this terrible situation because of the current president or current administration or the last president and the last administration. But as you've said on a lot of the different things that I've listened to that you've been on, this is way, way bigger than that. Talk yeah. to us about your framework that you, that you use. I think, as you said, right, there's a lot of things going on in the world today. We have all this turmoil everywhere. We have uh, you know, protests all over the world. Uh, people are at each other's throat, never been more divided, all these different things, and leaders that seem incompetent, and uh, you name it, right? A lot of people are like wondering, like, what the heck happened? How did we get here? Some people think that we'll just go back to normal. Some people think there is no new normal. And a lot of people think this was like a black swan event, this virus that came out of nowhere. Who could have predicted that a virus would come and cause all this problem? That's the black swan event. And I would say, well, not really the exact trigger of the virus potentially, but the fact that the whole world is kind of up in arms over this isn't really. And so the way I look at it is if you start zooming out, you start seeing things in more context. So like if you're looking at any financial markets, you're looking for indicators. And there's never one financial indicator that's conclusive. You're looking for multiple indicators. And then preferably, if you can look for indicators across different segments and across different areas that start lining up, it becomes even more powerful. So I think you know, we can easily start kind of in this financial. I mean, there's, there's three different ones that I've looked at. So one is like this political, social, cultural angle. So populist uprisings, right? Revolutions. There's that. And then there's the financial revolution, the financial reset that we're in right now, which I think uh, being kind of on an investing podcast and Bitcoin podcast, we kind of focus on that a lot, right? Like interest rates are at zero, they're negative. Can they raise them? Debt, we have a debt sky high. Can they keep printing more debt? All those things. What, what are they going to do? The Fed's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so that needs to be reset. And then we're sitting on the edge, a beginning of another technological revolution. 
So we have like a political revolution that goes on like a 250 year cycle, a technological revolution on a 50 year cycle, and a financial revolution on an 80 year cycle. And all three are converging right now at the exact same time. And so I can walk you through this a little bit, but when you start to see it from three different angles and all converging, it starts to be very clear. And so kind of on the political side, I mean, as we said, right, we see people are at each other's throat. Who could have seen this? We have millions of people marching in the streets all around the world. And that's a black swan, right? I mean, they're protesting against mandates. They're protesting against governments or whatever. It's like before the pandemic broke out, there was 10 countries with over 1 million people each in the streets protesting. That was before the pandemic. So this isn't because of the pandemic. This was already starting before the pandemic. And so also kind of like financial cycles, we have like, if you're looking at like technical analysis, you have uh, mathematical formulas. And so you might have like a triple bottom. And so we can also look at cycles happening in like triple cycles as well. So I'll explain what I mean by that. So even though progress is moving exponentially, things are obviously a lot different today than they were 100 years ago. They're also repeating within that progress at the same time. And so about every 84 years, and I say about every 84, because like, just like the seasons on a calendar, while you may have spring starts on a certain day, it doesn't mean the weather changes exactly at that time. And so about every 84 years, we have what's a, a called a populist uprising or a regime change cycle. And so 84 years ago was the end of World War II and Hitler and Mussolini. We had uh, FDR created the New Deal, turned America into a socialist nation. And about 84 years before that, we had Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, which led to the European Spring and the largest revolution of European history. And of course, here we are again, seeing the same thing, populist uprising all, all over the place. But back to kind of this mathematical formula, like the triple bottom. So three times 84 equals 252. And every 250 years, we go into a revolution cycle. So 250 years ago was the American Revolution, the French Revolution. 250 years before that was the Protestant Reformation. And what those really signify to me when I dig in and study that is that in the American Revolution, we pushed back on the centralization of the monarchy to be ruled by one king. And we, we pushed back and we set up a decentralized government, a republic. We rejected centralization. We moved to decentralization. 250 years before that, the church and the state ruled with an iron fist. There was one way to God. They had the Bible. No one else could read it. The printing press disrupted that. People got the information. They said, wait a minute. We don't need to only listen to what you said. We can find our own path. And they went and sought this decentralized path. And so about every 250 years, we can see that. And it's like this pendulum that swings back and forth. And it goes all the way to centralization, and then it peaks out, and then it starts pushing back. And that's because it's reactionary. Almost again, like a financial chart, if you look at it, the further it deviates to one side, the further it's probably going to snap back to the other. And so we go one, so far to one way, it comes back the other way. And so while a lot of people think that this is a black swan, that people are protesting and pushing back, well, about every 80 years they do, and every 250 years, we have the big one. And so I think when you look at it from that lens, all of a sudden it's like, hmm, maybe it, was, maybe it wasn't the fact that this pandemic, this virus happened because we've had lots of virus epidemics for the last 100 years or multiple 100 years, but it was really the fact that for the last 80 years or really for the last 250 years, we've been swinging from decentralized all the way to centralization and it's time to push back. And I think anybody who's halfway paying attention sees this. We can see that we have the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization and the World Trade Organization and the 
World Meteorological Association and the UN and the IMF and the BIS, et cetera. And so we're at peak centralization. And I think the people are just pushing back on that. So I think that's kind of lens number one, if that makes sense. What other lenses are you, are you seeing? Real quick, before we move on to lens number two, a couple of things that I think are of interest in this as well is that if we look at this pendulum swing, it also swings in a couple of different ways. So about every 80 years in those 80-year cycles, we swing from centralization to decentralization or what's called like a we or me cycle. But also what we see swinging back and forth is a swing from creative cycles to more analytical cycles. And so 250 years ago, we started in the industrial revolution. 250 years before that, we started in the Renaissance age. And so we can also see how these things change as well, which is really interesting. Right now, I believe, and you've probably heard other people talking about this, like the Renaissance age is starting again. Something that most people have probably read, The Sovereign Individual, they talk about these like mega political factors, these mega political shifts that happen. We can see what really broke the grip of the church was that new technology, the, the printing press, the Bible, which decentralized the information, right? And no matter how much the church tried to put a stranglehold on that, if you spoke out against the Bible, that was heresy and they would kill you. And they did, and they killed millions of people, but they couldn't stop the information. And today we're seeing the same thing, right? The information is out there. And even though they're trying to assassinate your character and shut you down online, they're not able to stop this information. The tide is turning. So I think that's one of the big things. But what's interesting is that solutions are supposed to come to problems. And I say supposed to because today we got a bunch of money being printed and it's going around trying to solve problems that don't need to be solved. Which yes. You told me about some of the questions we'll get to later. And, and uh, some of those are, are some solutions that we don't need. But if you look at the problems that we do have, and so we're at peak centralization. So that's a problem. What, what kind of problems? Well, one, we have you know, the Federal Reserve or the central banks. They've centralized the money printing, the money creation, and they're printing unlimited amounts of it. And not just that, but just the government. I mean, they're trying to control every aspect of our lives at this point. Of course, in China with the social credit course system, but we, what we have going on across the world with the passport systems and on and on and on. And so peak centralization appears to be a problem that the world is pushing back against right now. And so on a 50-year cycle, we have these technological revolutions that happen. And I'm not talking about just like new technologies. A new technology would be like the iPhone or be like Uber. Like that's pretty cool. New technologies, they extend a cycle. A technological revolution is something that changes the course of humanity. Well, not like the transistor. So the transistor is kind of a piece of that, but really it's the industrial revolution in the late 1700s, which brought people from the farms and cottage industry into cities and into factories. So it changed the way humanity worked, changed the whole course of humanity. About 50 years later, we had the invention of steam engines and railways. So for all of humanity, we had horsepower and manpower. And now we had steam engines and we had rails and we could move stuff across continents. So it changed the course of the world. Then we had electricity, electricity, steel, and uh, electricity and steel. So that changed the course of humanity. When electricity came out, it was like, what is that? It's like, it's like a digital candle. But what do we need that for? Candles have been light for 5,000 years. And look, I can, like, this candle's portable and I can move it around and I don't need all these wires. Like, candles are way better for light. But of course, electricity changed the course of humanity. Steel, you're an engineer, so you know how steel changed humanity, right? We could build skyscrapers, we could build bridges and things like that. So that's what I'm talking about in a technological revolution. Then we had about 50 years later, we had the age of oil and automobiles, assembly lines. All of humanity, people walked and rode horses and now we could drive, right? 
1971, we had the age of the microprocessor, which then, of course, brought personal computers, telecommunications, the internet, Zoom, what we're doing right now. 1971 plus 50 years puts us right here today. And I believe we're on the verge of another technological revolution. And what is that giving us? Well, it's giving us exactly what we need. So we need the problem is centralization. We have a technological revolution giving us decentralization, which I think is pretty amazing. You were talking about the centralization of government and central banking. And I think that a huge piece of this is just the centralization of equity itself, of the ownership of equity and how small to mid cap sized businesses are just getting eaten up by large cap businesses. You know, if we were playing a game of Monopoly, all the equity at this point is owned by one player in the game. And you think about how unfair and how difficult that is for anybody to to compete in a system where everything is just gobbled up by the player who has so many resources and so much. And it just kind of plays into this whole idea and this theme that you're talking about, which is everything is centralized. Everything has been consolidated, right? Well, and as the government has gotten so big and the money printer has enabled them to not only get so big, but also kind of allow these businesses to kind of have all this unlimited capital, this is what happens. The beast just kind of keeps getting bigger. And so through the regulations, that the, the cronyism, if you will, right, between the, the corporations and the government working together, they build these moats that don't allow for this competition. Last week, Alex Fetsky and I got together and did a book sprint, and we took, you're hearing it first, we haven't officially released it yet, but we took the Communist Manifesto and we rewrote it, and we're calling it the Uncommunist Manifesto. And we kept the same structure, four chapters, kept the same about word count, 10,000 words, but wrote kind of exactly what you're talking about. And we talked about how these businesses, being unable to fail, they're not allowed to fall down. And so we don't have this dynamic creative destruction, right? And so it makes it harder for people to climb up and people aren't falling down to your point, creative destruction. That's part of this collectivism or this cronyism that we kind of have in the system today. And so, yeah, centralization also because of the money printer, right? And so I think we both agree the money printer kind of sits at the base of pretty much every problem that we have in society today. It was uh, Mises talked about in the crack up boom, right? Uh, when you have an economic expansion that's fed by credit and monetary expansion, it starts to lead to distortions in the market that leads to shortages and labor shortages. So he explained that. And then finally, the people wake up and realize that inflation is persistent. And then we have the crack up boom. But he explained how this money creation starts to have these distortions, which we're seeing all over the place. But back to the centralization. So if the problem is centralization, then we need something that's decentralized. And so I think it's pretty cool when you look at it from that lens that one's moving on a 250-year time frame and one's on a 50-year time frame, but it's brought us kind of exactly what we need when you look at it from that perspective. And I think when you also look at like again, problems coming to solutions, if you look at the big problems, again, decentralization, but more specifically, unlimited money printing, which I think sits at the base of that. And so we need something that has a fixed supply cap. We used to have a rule of law that was easy to understand. Everybody could understand what that rule of law is so we could set our life. I could set my life based on those laws. You could set your life based on those laws. But today, we're ruled by men who arbitrarily change the rules on us all the time. right? And then we also have censorship as a problem. And not just censorship on that I can't say what I want on YouTube or Twitter, but that I can't even hold my wealth or my value without it being taken, inflated away, nor can I send it to you without it being stopped or blocked or prevented if the banking system doesn't want that to happen. And so then the solutions would be decentralization. The solutions would be immutable law, not governance. The solutions would be censorship resistant. 
And I think when you look at it from that lens and you look at 15,000 cryptocurrencies that are in the market today, I think there's only really one that has all those attributes, which I think is pretty interesting. Like, for example, one of the big gripes with Bitcoin was, or against Ethereum, is that Bitcoin has 21 million, but we don't know what Ethereum's cap is. And so, was it five, six months ago, Vitalik Buterin and boys got together and they changed the monetary issuance of Ethereum. But isn't that like the system that we're trying to leave behind? Doesn't that sound like the Federal Reserve that can change the monetary standard all the time, you know? Or you hear about these POS networks, you know, Cardano has this decentralized governance. So whoever has the most tokens can stake them and then they can get votes to change the protocol. But that's again, like the system that we have. What we want is immutable law that can't be changed. And so I think when you look at it from like a problem and solution kind of mindset, you see the case for you know, what Bitcoin is doing. Do you find sense. that Wall Street and entities out of this traditional system that have, have had extraordinary results and have their hand right next to the money printer, I think they're obviously incentivized for these other systems, these other protocols to be successful. So as you see this kind of playing out, how do you see that impacting just things moving forward? Is it a battle that they're just that they're destined to lose for some technical reason? Just walk us through some of your thoughts on on those ideas. The battle that the bankers are destined to lose? Yeah, kind of. Like you so you have Bitcoin in our opinion, right? We think that it's the the best decentralized choice and we think that it's the fairest choice out there. But that doesn't mean that all this fiat printing that they could then nest into marketing for whatever token, and they have a huge interest and they have a huge stake in these other tokens, what's preventing them from winning in the end against what we see to be the, you know, the fairest choice? Just because it's the fairest doesn't mean that it's going to win, right? Nature can select things in ways that a lot of people just don't necessarily expect, right? So moving forward, why do you think that Bitcoin will win and these other protocols will, will lose? Well, you said nature. So I think about natural law. And so natural law would be like the law of gravity. And so with enough money and enough technology, I could suspend the law of gravity for a while, but I'm always going to have to be holding to that law. And so we have to think about natural law. So there's another natural law called the law of sowing and reaping. And I must produce before I can consume, right? And so while we can print fake fiat currency, and that can work for a while, and we could suspend the laws of nature, and we can consume without producing, we can pull that forward through fiat currency, it won't work long-term. right? We can suspend it temporarily. We could get by with it for 80 years, 100 years, but eventually it fails. And that's because some of the attributes of money, one of the main ones being scarcity. right? And so with scarcity, you have to have like this true cost of capital, which is why gold has been a good proxy for that forever. Bitcoin, of course, fits that with its mining principle. But if you're just going to print fiat currency or go print tokens at will, you just end up with the same fake system that isn't based on natural law, in my opinion. And I think what happens is, is that as humans, we know this, we understand this, and we've seen gold kind of battled out with fiat for a long time. And I think we'll want to return to that. And I think on a longer lens, if we look back, if we look at, again, how the world shifted from when the church and the state kind of held control over everything, and then the world kind of went into this expansion and through the Renaissance, where we had this explosion of science and technology through the 1500s, 1600s, we also had sound money. So we had the florin, the longest lasting coin for about three, 400 years that wasn't debased, globally recognized for trade. We had the flourishment of information. 
But then we went into the industrial age, which caused everything to start centralizing again, like we talked about. But what we're seeing now is again, through the internet, we've started this shift back to decentralization. So we're already in the process. And so the pandemic has helped speed that up. So we saw people already, you and I are already working over the internet. I have a team of about 15 people. They're all decentralized working across the world. The pandemic really kickstarted that. And so we're seeing people leave the cities and move to Wyoming and Colorado and Idaho, but they're also moving to Mexico and El Salvador and and places like that. And so I think as people continue to move, start decentralizing, the nation starts losing its grasp on people. Instead of having big corporations they can squeeze, I mean, you did say that these businesses are, are consolidated, and that's true. So we're seeing Walmart and, and uh, Amazon getting bigger. But at the same time, we're seeing all these small businesses getting smaller, and um, the money has been the key piece they continue to control. And I think once we can decentralize, we can go live where we want, and we can move to a different money they can't control, I think more people are going to want to use that. And so can they continue to print more fake money? Sure. Can they continue to create more tokens out of thin air? Sure. But I think as they start to lose their grip, people are going to want to move to a currency they can't control. I think I, I made a video about this when China banned cryptocurrency for the whatever 13th time or whatever it was. And it was about the Mundel Fleming trilemma. Mundel Fleming trilemma is you can't control the monetary supply, the, the uh, inflation rate, and free flow of capital at the same time. And so since they wanted to continue to adjust the monetary supply and the inflation rate, they had to take away the free flowing capital because capital would leave the country. Anytime they continue to monkey with that system, people are going to want to try to find another option, which in the United States we are. Of course, that's why real estate, that's why stocks, that's why those assets are sky high. People know they have to go into anything else but the currency. And so I would just expect to see that continue. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, 
Back to the show. So yesterday, I think this broke. This is a really interesting uh, news headline. Bitmex acquired a, a, a German bank that's 268 years old, and wow. uh, now they're going to be expanding their Bitcoin services into Europe through this bank. And I guess it, it's just not something that I had ever thought was kind of like maybe what's going to play out next, because there's so much regulatory friction all over the place preventing Bitcoin exchanges from basically touching the rails where the central banks are already integrated with traditional banks. And I guess I just I was not expecting to see Bitcoin exchanges step in and just outright buy some of these banks that are touching these central bank rails. What are your thoughts on this? Is this going to be something that kind of keeps maturing as we move forward? And just I guess your general thoughts on the regulatory path forward for a lot of Bitcoin exchanges being integrated with traditional finance. I'm pulling up this quote that I uh, was working on last week when I was working on that book. And it was John Maynard Keynes, and he was quoting Lenin. And he said, the best way to destroy the capitalist system was to debauch the currency. By a continuing process of inflation, governments can confiscate. I'll skip to the end. He says, uh, which form the ultimate foundation of capitalism becomes so utterly distorted as to be almost meaningless. And the process of wealth getting degenerates into a gamble and a lottery. So capitalism will be destroyed all the way down into gambling and a lottery. So what I think about in regards to BitMEX buying the, the German bank is that unfortunately, the best way to make money today is theft and gambling. We saw last month the record amount of job quits ever, and people are quitting their jobs to trade options on Robinhood and trade cryptocurrencies. I think NBC, CNBC did a whole special on uh, Generation Gamble, all these kids that are just trading, trading, trading. And so basically what Lenin was saying is that through inflation, deflation, the banks will break it down to where it degenerates into a gamble and a lottery. It sounds like he foresaw NFTs. Right. <laughs> and so what we're seeing is all these people are trading cryptocurrencies, trading NFTs, trading options on Robinhood, options trading surpassed stock trading. None of that provides any value. They trade, they trade, they trade. No value is being provided. No goods or services are being created. And then they take that money and go buy goods and services from people that are actually producing wealth. And so it's a net drag. And the reason why I say that back to the, the BitMEX bank thing is that BitMEX has amassed a lot of money. They've made a lot of money, more than most banks, more than a 234-year-old German bank. Yeah. But how did they do that? They bought it because what are people doing on BitMEX? They're gambling. And so I believe it's a sign of the times, right? We're seeing the end of this long-term credit cycle. We're at the end of this, we're at about an 80-year financial revolution cycle. Lenin warned us the banks would debauch the currency with inflation and deflation, and they would lead to a degeneration of gamblers. And so 80 years ago, the entire global financial system was reset. We had the Bretton Woods Agreement. The whole world agreed to go to a single monetary unit standard on a gold standard, the dollar, et cetera. And here we are six months ago, Georgina, Kristalina, whatever from the IMF called for a Bretton Woods II. They're calling for a monetary reset right now, a global monetary reset. And of course, so, we have Klaus Schwab calling for the Great Reset, et cetera. So they're saying this, but what tool or how are they going to get global cooperation in order to pull something like that off? So I don't want to tell you my opinion, but I think you know my opinion. Yeah. What does the execution of that look like? The way that I'm kind of seeing the world is a coup d'etat of bankers. The bankers have taken over the world. And uh, I kind of look at this hierarchy of uh, like maybe the BIS sitting up at the top of the world. We kind of have these think tanks, the WEF, 
WHO, et cetera, kind of there. And then kind of down a low, low level, we have like the governments, which are kind of like the policy enforcers, so the, the bank, the policy creators, the policy enforcers. And so what we saw through the pandemic, I think kind of illustrates how that would go. So for example, the whole world locked down at once. I never thought that would have happened. A lot of people said, oh, the world will make Bitcoin illegal. I'm like, the world can't agree on anything. That's never going to happen. But all of a sudden, the whole world just locked down at once. And how that happened? Well, the IMF issued a bunch of debt, a bunch of SDRs, and basically paid these nations to start locking down. We saw many reports that Belarus said they offered them as much as $900 million to lock down. And so how could they do it? Well, very easily, they get the nations to just switch to these SDRs and central bank digital currencies. Of course, we know China's rolling theirs out here. It's already been out. Most of the other nations are working on it. So I think the plan would be, and this starts getting into opinion, but I think the plan would be just to get these central bank digital currencies and try to get everybody to switch over that. We've seen the STEMI you know, pumping out throughout the United States. Of course, when they did the first round of stimulus, they started to build in that digital payment system into the, into the stimulus bills. And so we know they're getting ready for that. And I think probably within the next two years, once that's ready to go, they'll probably be ready to try to switch the system over. They're not only telling us, right? The IMF said it, Klaus Schwab said it, they're showing us, they're building central bank digital currencies. And we also know it. I mean, the Fed's stuck. If they keep printing, inflation is going to keep pushing higher and higher. If they stop stimulus, the markets crash, you can't really taper a Ponzi. If you and I were playing a board game and we're out of moves, what do we do? We reset the game. And I think that's kind of where we're at. I think you do a really good job of kind of looking at what we've just got done seeing and and kind of demonstrating how it could potentially play out. I, I've always just kind of thrown my hands in there. Like They can't agree on, it, on anything. There's no way that they're going to agree on a new monetary unit or monetary standard. But I think you're right. I think, there, I think there's a lot more global cooperation happening with the BIS. With the, I mean, you're seeing it through the World Economic Forum with the messaging that they're doing there, and they're even calling it the Great Reset. I mean, they're dangling carrots of freshly printed SDRs and everything else. Yeah as the way to get compliance. What I would say to that though, is that also like, while the world is like, will the dollar remain the world reserve standard? Will it fail? Will we go to a Chinese yuan? Will it be a central bank digital currency? Will we go back to a gold standard? And so I think everybody's looking for what the next global reserve, what's the powers that be tell us the next thing is. I just think the future is decentralized. Yeah. It's not centralized. So everyone's looking for a centralized answer. The truth is that Bitcoin has been my standard, my reserve, and it's probably yours. And we know Fortune 500 companies like MicroStrategy now, and now we know nations like El Salvador as well. And so it's already starting to switch one by one. And so the way that I see it is not that the dollar dies and in a couple of years it's gone. I think uh, my kind of vision is kind of looking at like this fourth turning model, like four, you know, 20 year cycles, an 80 year cycle. And back to Lenin, not to quote him, he's not one of my favorite guys, but he said that. Uh, he said that there's decades where nothing seems to happen and there's days where decades seems to happen. And so that kind of fits into that fourth turning, right? And so we're kind of at the end of this. And so I think in the next three to five years, we max out at peak centralization. And then the pendulum starts swinging back pretty hard. Do you know who Chris McIntosh? I've heard the name, but I'm not. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I spoke with him today. He's, uh, he's brilliant. He's been studying this a lot. And he said that he thinks that we're in a global socialism blow off top. A parabola. So we're peak socialism right now. So you know how a blow off top starts working. It starts sucking in everybody and goes higher, higher, higher. And he's like, we're in a we're in a parabolic blow off top for socialism where socialism didn't die. Like, I don't want to deal with my health. Let's just push that to the government, government healthcare. I don't want to take care of my kids. Let's just push that to the government, run schools. 
we've basically just pushed everything off to the governments and socialism. The nanny state has just gotten bigger, bigger, bigger. And the way he called it was pretty interesting today. Like I said, like really the socialism like blow off top and it's just starting to go into this parabola and then it just, it just blows off, which I think probably happens the next couple of years. But I don't think the dollar just dies. I mean, the dollar is going to be around. But you and I, lots of other people, we've left. We've gone into the, into the arc and we've gone away. And that goes back to that Mundell Fleming trilemma that I said about China, where they had to stop the free flow of capital. What happens is the reason why is if enough people leave, then their monetary and interest rate policies don't affect that many people. If we were having a party and uh, I was like, hey, you know, whatever, stop doing that. You're too noisy. And I started kicking everybody out of the party. Eventually, I'm the only one at the party. And they've all started their own party over there. And I think that's why I see it. Just more and more people. I think um, the Fed will continue to print more money. I think all the governments of the world will continue to print more money. And in the US, they said it's 7% inflation. It's probably 15% inflation. Maybe that's not too bad. But if you're in Venezuela, 2,500%, it is bad. And you're looking for an alternative. If you're in Turkey, you're looking for an alternative. And at some point, the heat gets hot enough. At some point, the water's hot enough and you, and you got to jump. And I think that's coming pretty quick. You know, we've been talking about this a lot on the show is just this delta between these inflationary prints that we're seeing and what the rest of the fixed income market around the globe is at. And the negative spread is just so dramatic, like yeah. nothing we had ever seen in our lifetimes. And I just don't know if, if we can go another half a year or a year with inflation running as hot as it is with these fixed income markets as low as they are in yield terms. And I think you might get in this situation where, especially if they keep doing more of these policies, because these policies are what's causing this massive economic calculation around the world. The more that they do those policies, the more I think you're going to see that spread widen. And I think that's when maybe things just get away from these central controllers. And you know they might not be able to... I guess going back to, your, to the point that you made earlier, where you were talking about how, how they could maybe implement this, right? If those markets start selling off in these cascading sell-offs, and then they come in with yield curve control, Right, where they're going to try to peg the yields from going up to where the inflationary prints are at. They're just making all of that economic calculation that much worse because they're adding more printing into the system. Maybe that just runs away in, a, in a, such a magnificent kind of way, and not, not in a good way, but in a spectacular fashion that they just can't control it. And so then everybody turns to what you're describing as the decentralized solution where trust is garnered because there's not debasement happening. Is that how you think that this might play out? Is the cascading sell-off happens so quickly that they can't respond to it? I think partially that is based off an assumption that they want to save it. What you think is maybe a, a gross assumption? Well, they said they want they're calling for a Bretton Woods too. They're they're calling for a whole new monetary standard, a whole new monetary yeah. system. I don't know. I can't pretend to know what's in a man's heart or in a man's mind, and that's the part of the problem. We don't know what Jerome Powell or or the IMF is going to do anymore, but they're calling for a reset of the system. And so everything that I seem to think of and what you were kind of saying as well is like, that's assuming that they're trying to, they want to keep the game going, but what if they don't? Yeah. What if they want to just, oh, that didn't work. Sorry. And so how could they, how could they cover that up? So again, they're calling for it, not me. Those are their words, but like war. So typically war comes after the financial crisis happens, not before war comes after. And so we're in a war. We're in, Klaus Schwab two days ago said, we're in a war against the virus. We're in a war against the virus, he says, which we are. What is the, na- 
the world's gone under $20 trillion of debt in the last 24 months. $20 trillion we spent fighting this war, supposedly. The next war that they're positioning for, I mean, now there's literally war almost with Russia, what's going on in Ukraine over there right now. But really what I'm starting to see with that war isn't like the shooting war, which I think most people are looking at, a hot war. The wars are fought over information and money. And so what they're really starting to seed is this cyber war. And they're starting to say that Russia, right? They've been saying for the last two years, Russia messed with the elections. Russia's interfering. They're in you know, the cyber warfare. Was it today? I think Biden came out and said that you know he thinks that Russia is going to continue to do the cyber attack on us. And so we've seen them talking about, Klaus Schwab made this video. He said, the, the internet has a virus and um, we need to Take, we need to treat this virus. We need to be able to shut the internet down if we need to, to repair this virus. And they're starting to kind of position for these like global IDs. The internet's not safe anymore. People like you who may use the internet anonymously are putting it in danger. And so about, was it a couple of weeks ago, they started saying that um, the treasury and some of the financial institutions, they actually were running a, a, a game, war games on if the financial institutions were to get attacked by a cyber attack, what they would do. So they ran this war game. What do you think the solution was in the war game if they had this attack on the financial system? It was a bank holiday. It was a bank holiday. We shut the banks down. And so if we had this attack, if we had this war, a cyber war, if the banking system, the financial system was attacked, they went onto a bank holiday, they put it in their papers. (laughs) I'm not making it up. But if that were to happen and it creates all this problem, well, it was their fault. We didn't mean to crash the system. The, the system was going fine. We had everything going great. So war, I think, is a great cover for it. Whether it's the, the virus war we're fighting now, whether it's a cyber war that they're, they're positioning right now, of course. And then there's the climate war, which is, which is next. Let's go down that path. I've noticed a little bit of a shift in the narrative, in the ESG narrative, where you're finding a lot of people starting to push back. Maybe it's because yeah. I have a lot of Bitcoiners that I follow. They're all just like not having it and not having it for good reason. For me personally, the the thing that I think is one of the best responses to the whole ESG piece is Jeff Booth. Mm. Jeff throwing out there like, hey, we've got this inflationary system that requires more and more consumption of all these resources. And these two models are completely incongruent with each other. Yep. The inflationary model that produces deflationary tech and all these deflationary things that we've got to keep escalating because of the printing that's, that's taking place in order to hit these inflationary targets for decades on end. And so his whole piece is like, you can't have this environmental friendly whatever yeah. if you're relying on these central banking inflationary policies. How yeah. do you see it? I'm assuming yeah. you see it very similarly. Oh yeah, I mean I love that. I love that angle. It's it's exactly right. So you create this inflationary money monetary system that causes consumerism, this endless buying and purchasing. Products today are made cheap, right? They're made to be thrown away, etc. So we have all this consumerism, all this waste, but then you're trying at the same time to then limit that through ESG. So you're trying to basically hamstring companies by extracting money out of them to get them to produce less. So you're getting them to produce more with the in, in, with the monetary system and then tax them at the same time. Um, he's absolutely right. It's it's a genius way to look at it. And I would agree with that. But I think it's not really... I mean, and again, I hate to get into this side of it, but if we want to wade into that into the deep end a little bit, I think most of it isn't really about trying to save the environment. Lynn Alden put out a pretty fire tweet thread, I think she yesterday did. or day before. <laughs> she crushed it. Yeah. And, uh, and she crushed it. And it's like, it's not really about 
trying to save the environment. First of all, and this is probably going to kick the hornet's nest. We don't need to go there. I'm not a professional or scientist, but there's a conversation that should be had that the whole basis of their argument needs to be discussed in the first place. So is carbon really bad? I think there's a whole conversation that can be had around that. I'm not really prepared to have that. Uh, there's people that are prepared and, I, and, I've, and I've listened to them. So there's that. But in regards to kind of what she just said, right? It's like, um, I think it's more about trying to control the system and we're at peak centralization. So they're trying to get as much power and control of everything they can. And back to kind of the structure of this world, and you can't get any governments to agree on anything. Well, how can they get control of the whole world? They can't take control of every government. What they could do is get everyone, every government to buy in to a narrative on climate change and then have them basically lay down their sovereignty in the amount of energy and the types of energy that they use. And of course, I draw a blank, but he said, Control the food, you control the people, control the money, you control the continent, control the energy, you control the world. So those are the three attack vectors, right? Uh, food, money, and energy. You can, as he said, control the energy, take control the world. So if they can control this energy policy, then they can start to control the world. And I think that's really what it's about more than really trying to save the climate. We know that pretty evidently, one, the monetary uh, policy, like Booth said, but I mean, just look at, look at nuclear. If they really wanted zero carbon energy, I mean, nuclear is zero carbon energy. With about the size of a baseball, you could run a whole city of nuclear. But in order to get windmills or solar, you got to dig out an entire nation. And so if they really wanted it, they would be using solutions that we know are better right now. And uh, they're hiding behind uh, safety, but the numbers don't support that. And so I think that kind of discredits their whole narrative. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joints range of motion helping you move more freely prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the joint chiropractic find out more today call 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com call right now 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, 
yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. How do you think uh, proof of work versus proof of stake is going to play out politically moving forward? Because I've been pleasantly surprised to date. I was expecting this to be way worse politically this past year, and I've been pleasantly surprised, but that doesn't mean that the 2022 things could start getting derailed. So I'm curious how you see it evolving. Well, I think from a political standpoint, there's two different things I'm seeing. One is that I think Bitcoin has reached a level of entrenchment, not just in the political system in the United States, but also in the financial system in the United States, that I think it's past the point of no return. So the political system in the United States is mainly driven by lobbyists, right? They're the ones that write the bills and send them to get get co-authored or whatever. And so who are the big lobby groups? Well, the financial industry. And most of the financial industry at this point has built out Bitcoin products, right? Uh, They probably spent collectively, I would guess, billions of dollars to build out Bitcoin desks and Bitcoin products, and they're the ones lobbying. And so if there was a bill that would come under attack to shut Bitcoin down and proof of work for that matter, would come under heavy fire. We have a number, probably at least two dozen senators and congressmen that are Bitcoiners, known Bitcoiners. And now we're starting to see with midterms coming up this year, we're starting to see lots of people starting to run on like a Bitcoin platform. And so I think there would be this massive pushback, both from the financial industry and and the politicians, if they tried to go against proof of work or Bitcoin for that matter. I think there was, was it 25 million Americans own Bitcoin? I think some, some, some number like that. So there'd be a massive outrage there as well. And I also think that between the Fed and the government, they've spent $8 trillion trying to prop up the markets in the last 24 months, trying to keep them from crashing. If they made it, if they banned it or made it illegal, I mean, they would just wipe the entire economy out. So I don't think they want to do that. So that's the way I look at it. What scares me a little bit is with POS, what we're really starting to see is we're starting to see a lot of entrenchment from the WEF, World Economic Forum, into some of these proof of stake companies like Ethereum, for example. And so um, it seems like the World Economic Forum is much more influential in the world than the United States is. Not to get into you know super deep into politics, but you know when Trump went to Davos, he said you know the United States is a sovereign nation. You know we're willing to work with other countries, but we won't lay down our sovereignty. But you know I don't know if Biden would necessarily take that stance. And so if the World Economic Forum, if the if the global power is trying to pressure the United States into this energy narrative. You know, maybe there's some problem there. But I think, like I said, with the entrenchment we have in the, with the financial system, with the senators and congressmen, and then, of course, with the SEC, Gary Gensler, I mean, he seems to be pretty pro-Bitcoin at this point. I think he's changed his tune even. Last comment I seen from him, he said, uh, I think he said pretty much any token that isn't Bitcoin, even including Ethereum, is probably a security. I think that's what he said, probably yeah. a security. So... Yeah, I think I think there's going to be that posturing. I think, like you said, uh, the ESG narrative is starting to crack. There was uh, something I saw today, and I didn't write it down who it was, uh, but they were saying this whole thing about ESG narratives in Canada on the oil fields, and you're trying to take money from productive companies and put it in technologies that don't work. He says like it's going to ruin crazy. everything. 
it's crazy. And so, so it's breaking, it's cracking. I'm not really worried about the government, you know, kind of cracking down on POW because of that. Yeah. And, and, and even if they do, even if you see it localized where some country cracks down on it, I don't think that's going to stop all the other places in the world that are just moving out on yeah. proof of work. I mean, look at El Salvador as, as an example. It's like, hey, we've got a volcano. Let's do uh, geothermal and ship us as many miners as we can buy. And this kind of goes back again to the printing press and the internet. And so the printing press, right, the church tried to control that information, but they, they, just, they just couldn't. No matter how many people died, they couldn't stop it. Today, we have Joe Rogan getting you know, hundreds of millions of listens, and then CNN's getting like a few hundred thousand. It's crazy. It's crazy. And so while they're trying to control the narrative, I just don't think people are falling for it that no. much anymore. You can make the argument that they're making people double down against it. People can see what, what's happening, and they're not happy. You could. It. And so like these outlandish headlines, uh, I saw going around today, a bunch of people reposted. I think I reposted too. The, the World Economic Forum said in 2017 that Bitcoin would consume more energy yeah. than the rest of the world, right? And uh, I mean, it's like, it's like, one per- it's like less, less than 1%. Than, less than a percent, yeah. That doesn't even tell the whole story, right? Because Bitcoin mining, in order to be profitable, you have to be probably under 5 cents a watt. To be super competitive, you're probably at under 3 cents a watt. Well, in California, in the summer, at the top tier, we're paying 40 cents a kilowatt hour. 40 cents. So you can't mine. You're not mining there. That's right. You're You're not not mining mining there. So you're not taking power that's being used. If it's 40 cents in California, where could you go get it for three cents? Somewhere that there's more supply than demand, (laughs) somewhere where it's making a lot of electricity, nobody's using it. So Bitcoin goes to those areas where nobody's using the electricity. I was talking to uh, Wit, the CEO of Compass Mining, and they were talking about a new facility they're trying to open up, I think down in Paraguay or something. There's a new dam that got set up and there's just nobody buying the electricity. And he said, I don't even know I should be saying this, but- We can leave I it there. It's like a penny and a half, like 1.5 cents per yeah. kilowatt hour. Yeah. And I'm like, how can you get it for 1.5 cents? Well, they built this whole plant and nobody's using the electricity. That's right. And so Bitcoin, Bitcoin seeks that out. Bitcoin is not competing. It's not taking energy that's being used by anything else. And so I think people are realizing that. It's just a yeah. bunch of nonsense. And I think- what I'm seeing is that you know we have the information side, but also I think technology is moving so fast that it's not only making the nation state obsolete, but it's also making them look irrelevant. And so I think it was two or three months ago, I saw in, the, in Europe, the ECB was talking about passing a law where you couldn't make anonymous crypto wallets anymore. And it's like, really? Because like, I could plug in my wallet right now and like make 100. Okay. And like, you know, there were some senators here in the US talking about banning um, 3D printed guns. Really? Because that's like code that I could just like know in my head. Like even saying that you're going to ban it, it just makes you look ridiculous. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's just moving at such a pace that they just can't keep up with it. So losing the war. We had briefly talked about the NFTs and you were mentioning about gambling. And I love the quote that you shared earlier as far as when you're kind of getting to the tail end of these cycles, that that's yeah. what's happening. I was talking to a founder that's up in Canada, who's, who's from Venezuela. And he said that that's exactly what they saw in Venezuela was people were just trying to sell their cars in order to turn a profit. It was like whatever they could do to try to sell some, something and sell it to somebody else at a higher yeah. price than what they had, had bought it for was like the only way you could survive. And I'm assuming I, I know your position on NFTs, but talk us through your thoughts on the potential that the tech could present to the world in 5, 10, 15 years from now, and then kind of how you view it optically today. So I think I have a daughter, she's in high school, and a lot of the boys in high school, they're all 
they're trading options on Robinhood, <laughs> and they're they're I mean they're not into girls. They're just into trading NFTs or whatever crypto. It's crazy. Um, and like I want to get like her like kind of involved in what I'm doing, but like dude, like the best way to make money is to go trade that crap. And it's like that's just a state of where the world is. But I'd say a couple of things. So I was in uh, Art Basel week in Miami uh, about a month ago. And there was like all these NFTs everywhere. And I went to this one event and I met this guy and he's like, oh, Mark, I'm, I'm a big fan of your channel. Come here. I want to talk to you about my project. I'm like, okay, what is it? He's like, well, we do NFTs on real estate. I'm like, okay, I've been a real estate investor my whole career. Tell me more. And he said, well, um, what we're doing is we take a, a piece of real estate and then we tokenize it with a bunch of NFTs. And then like anybody here could buy one of the NFTs, which represents ownership in the property. Okay. So is that kind of like when I own a piece of real estate in an LLC and anyone can buy a share? Yeah. So it's the same thing that we're already doing, but you're just calling it something different. So I think there's a lot of, uh, I guess, snake oil could be a word, right? Where we're using these hyped up words, but they don't really mean anything. I got an email earlier today and it was also talking about, they wanted me to invite me to this web presentation to show me how to make money with NFTs. And they were going to show me how to take NFTs and put them into real estate, tokenized real estate with NFTs. Well, first of all, if I took a piece of real estate and made a hundred tokens or a thousand tokens, wouldn't all those tokens be fungible, not non-fungible? <laughs> <laughs> So, first of all, I think I don't think they understand what NFT is. That's kind of funny. I think they would push back. So let me just try to play devil's advocate. Yeah, here, please. Right? So I think they would push back and say, "Well, now it's it's got liquidity, and you can actually trade it on one of these platforms that I'm sure it's listed on, and you have easy access." Now they're not talking about all the regulatory issues that are yeah. there for sure, which is the whole reason why it has liquidity compared to existing models. Let's say that we get some regulatory stability there and you're able to go on there and you're able to just buy this without being an accredited investor, which I'm sure the regulatory framework would have to address some of those pieces. What do you say to something like that? So I think if we talk about tokenizing the world, so tokenizing real estate, and it adds a bunch of liquidity and the average guy could buy one token in a piece of Manhattan real estate or something like that. I mean, sure. I think that sounds okay. But it doesn't sound revolutionary in the sense that will change the world, not like a technological revolution, because yes. I can already own a share of a building in Manhattan today. Now, if I can own a token instead of a share and it's easier for me to sell it, like that's cool. And it increases the liquidity because it's easier. I get that, but it doesn't change anything. We still have an investor that builds a building. He still tokenizes it or turns it into shares or into a REIT. Me as a person across the country can still buy a share or a token in that project. Yes, because it's more liquid, the value goes up. So you kind of have like this. So yeah, so it's more liquid, the value goes up, but it's not changing the world. There's no revolution there. I don't know. That's what I'd say about that. And I would also say the same thing about the stocks, right? So if I own a share of Tesla stock and I own it through my E-Trade account, okay, but let's say that E-Trade puts it on a blockchain. And so I still own Tesla through E-Trade, but now it's on a blockchain. What difference does it make? I still own Tesla. Now, I don't own Tesla, but I'm just saying if I owned a stock. Now, I get it. I understand the way the stock market works. And you know, there's six different people in between me and the issuer. And so the custody 24, is really- Yeah, it becomes 24-7, 365, like all that stuff. Yeah. And like, you know, there's the famous Dole Foods case where like yeah. they found out there was 30% more shares issued than there were owners. And so it's a much better model, 100%. Yeah. And I think yeah. that it should go that way, but I don't see how it changes anything. I guess that's the point. And then, like um, in, in NFTs, as far as like you know, the, well, you're talking the, about the, FTs. You're talking about fungible tokens, right? Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> but they would be well. Fun, well, if it was like whatever, a thousand shares of Tesla stock, each one of those would be fungible. And back to the real estate, those would be fungible. That's why I don't understand why they're calling them non-fungible. If it was one token for one house, okay, sure, that one house is not fungible with another house. 
but they're talking about tokenizing the house. So all of those tokens would be fungible within that. Well, maybe they should call them EFTs, equity fungible tokens. Yeah. I see a world where assets are tokenized. I mean, it's a better model, yeah. but it just doesn't change anything, yeah. in my opinion. And then we have the NFTs like the apes, right? Like the, the, the JPEGs and things like that. And um, growing up as a kid, people traded baseball cards and people trade coins and people trade stamps. I never did. I was never into that stuff. Uh, my little brother, he, uh, I have a brother who's quite a bit younger than me. And his whole career, his job right now is he sells Pokemon cards. And he's trying, Mark, you don't understand. I can make so much money. Let me show you the differences in these cards. I'm like, I don't care about those cards and why one's worth more than another, but that's cool. And you're making money. And so whether it's a baseball card, uh, a stamp, a coin, a Pokemon card, or a JPEG, it's the same thing. That's not revolutionary. Yeah. And so to me, I'm not that interested. I don't understand why a lot of Bitcoiners are really upset about that. So you know, if I'm a musician and I'm selling my you know, to my fan club, my collectibles, and I want to sell them a JPEG. I mean, I don't know what that has to do with Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, I don't know why anybody's mad about that, but something that's already been done, there's nothing revolutionary about that, in my opinion. Yeah. I think where it could get interesting, maybe in the future, is if you're you know, playing a video game. And again, I'm not a video gamer, but I have kids and they're friends, they play these video games and they, you know, they play for a long time and they earn things in the game, right? So they skins for their gun or they buy things. And so I guess maybe they should have a way where they could own that and then maybe sell those things to other people. I mean, that kind of makes sense. And those could be NFTs. But again, but the game designers have no incentive to basically handicap their ability to add more whatever weapons. <laughs> I'm not a gamer, so I'm going to sound like a total yeah. idiot. If there's 10 broadswords in the game and the, game, the person who created the game wants to add another 10 so that they can collect the, the, the IPO of broadswords or add more stock into the game in order to uh, you know, make some money. I, I think they want to have that flexibility. They don't want to be handcuffed by something that's sitting on a blockchain that they can't control the issuance of, right? Yeah. It just defeats and also, the whole purpose. And also every single video game looks different. It's a completely yeah. different graphic. It's built on a different set of code. It runs on a different console or whatever it may be. And so how could one item go into another game and look exactly the same and like, and maybe that'll be solved someday. I mean, I saw the movie Ready Player One. Maybe yeah. that's what the yeah. world looks like in, what was that, 2040 or something like that? So maybe that's what the world looks like. And maybe there will be those NFTs in there. So Mark, for me, when I'm looking at this, I agree with the way you're describing this is pretty much exactly how I view this as well. The question becomes, if there is a decentralized protocol that people want to do some of these things on, who's the winner of that? Because the tokens that are being used in order to facilitate all of this processing and all of this data storage is going to be the thing that's going to go up way in value just because yes. of the, the utility that the, the, the world would be putting into that protocol. So how do you see that kind of playing out? Is it even an investable space today? You know, What are your thoughts? So the first thing I would say, and this is abrupt for some people, not everything needs to be decentralized. Amen to that. Not everything needs to be censorship resistant. So money does, but why does my video game need to be decentralized and immutable? I, I don't understand. Uh, and I saw um, there's somebody now building video games on the Bitcoin blockchain, but why? Why does it need to be on the Bitcoin blockchain? I don't understand that. So anyway, back to the question that you asked, I got this from somebody else. I heard it somewhere. I don't know where I got it from. But it was basically saying, if you understand how technology works, and 
you can look at the monetary system with the base settlement layer of gold and then layer two paper money and all the layers on top, or you look at the internet. So the internet's you know a, a layered system. So you have the TCP IP protocol that transfers information via packets across it, and then you build all the layers on top of it. So there's the TCP IP layer, and then we have trillions of dollars of value and trillions of applications built on top of it, my personal website, Amazon, or Zoom, all those different applications, but they only use one protocol. So does that make me a TCP IP protocol maximalist? We just only needed one. There's trillions of ways that you can play that. And so I kind of look at it as if we have Bitcoin, which is the value transfer protocol, we just need one, right? We need one. And there can be, I guess, trillions of different applications built on top of it, each one making a different trade-off at different levels for people that want those different things. I went on the Monero talk show and, uh, and, and tried to debate those guys with Monero. I'm not okay with the trade-offs that Monero has made. So for example, I want to verify the amount of Bitcoin on the network. Monero's privacy doesn't allow me to do that. I have to trust them now. Well, I don't like that. I don't like that trade-off. They could make that on layer two and people that are okay with that trade-off could opt into that. But they've made that option on, they, they made that on, on layer one. And so I think that we need one layer one, which is hard, and it's kind of dumb. It's kind of dumb. It's kind of slow. Yeah. And the reason why is because the more basic it is, a flat table, I could build almost anything on. The more complex that base layer is, the less options I have to build on top of it. So we want something slow and dumb, if you will, basic. So we have unlimited optionality on top of it. And then we make trade-offs for whatever we want on top of it. So one, yeah, not everything needs to be decentralized, but the things that do. I think all end up being built on one blockchain. And I think a couple other things. I think one, if you understand how business works, understanding Bitcoin is difficult because you have to know all these different disciplines. In business, my goal is to get customers. And one of the main goals to getting customers is to lower or remove the friction, make it as easy as possible to do business with me. So if I'm in um, Dave and Buster's and I got five minutes before I have to meet somebody, shoot, I could play one of these video games. Oh, I got to go stand in line. And I got to buy that card and I got to put 20 bucks on it. Like, ah, I'm not going to do that. I won't play. Right. So there's friction there. And so we don't want Dave and Buster cards. We don't have, we want tokens and cards everywhere we go. We just want one. And so I think, you know, from that perspective, it's pretty compelling why one base chain is probably all that we need. All right, Mark, those are the questions I have for you. I loved some of your points here, especially there at the end, just talking about how you kind of see the protocol stack kind of evolving moving forward. If people want to learn more about you, you have an incredible uh, podcast. I know you do live streams and things like that as well. Give people a handoff where they can learn more about you and then anything else that you want to highlight. The uh, best way to catch up everything is my website, onemarkmoss.com. That's the number one. As of October, I'm a nationally syndicated radio host on the iHeartRadio network. So I broadcast nationwide and I try to get my radio voice like Preston uh, <laughs> on there. Uh, so we're broadcasting nationwide, which is pretty cool. The world's loving it. The audience is loving it. So that's great. Uh, I make a couple of teaching videos per week on my YouTube channel, breaking down these complex subjects. And so that's it. Check out my uh, website for more or check me out on the radio or my YouTube channel, Mark Moss. Um, and, I'm, and I'm pretty active on Twitter, more, more active than I should be. <laughs> <laughs> Join the club. My, my goal this year was to try to lower how much time I spent on Twitter, but uh, you can find me on Twitter at one Mark Moss as well. Mark, I'm sure everybody's going to be interested in, in learning more after this incredible interview that you gave. So we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Mark, thank you so much for making time. Yeah, Preston. Thanks so much. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. 
If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.